Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today is October 17th. Thank you all for listening. I wanted to start out by saying that I appreciate and listen to the comments that you all leave on the podcast summary and on the comments on Apple Podcasts. One listener replied that they did not really appreciate the ever-changing introductory music that I chose as a lead-in. Now, I get it. I do pick each song because it has some special meaning to that podcast topic. For example, when I talked about psychedelics, I used the Jefferson Airplane song, White Rabbit. When I talked about sex differences, I used Beyonce's Who Run the World Girls. But I get it, a a thousand percent. It's distracting, and if you don't like the song, then you're going to turn off the podcast. So we're going back to using two standard songs. One I downloaded is free from Apple called For Hope, and the other is a song composed by a friend and autism dad, Stephen Prutzman, from the Bay Area. Maybe I should have done a better job explaining my choices of introductory music, but now I've learned and I'm doing better. So today, I want to talk about two studies that are not necessarily similar, but do utilize technologies or techniques that have led to amazing contributions in understanding autism. The first is, what causes autism? Now, I know I'm constantly yammering on and on about gene-environment interactions, but also whining about why there are no ways to study them, why they're misunderstood, and for various reasons. There may be too many environmental exposures to measure, the existing analysis looks at genes and then leaves the rest as environmental influences, like it has to do with one or the other versus both. Well, today I'm going to talk about another study out of Norland. I know I talk a lot about these, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. This one comes from Finland from our friends at the MOBA study. It was published in August. I wanted the first author to be interviewed for it. Dr. Alexandra Havdal could not be a better person to explain this study. However, she's enjoying, and I say enjoying in quotation marks, because she's on maternity leave. She's enjoying her maternity leave. Maternity leave is not that much fun. But anyway, she had a baby and she's on leave. I do want you to know about it, though. It will go in my year-end summary of major accomplishment. So I want you to get a better descriptor of the study than that. The MOBA stands for the Norwegian Mother Father and Child Cohort Study. I think M-O-B-A is something to do with the translation in Finnish. I'm putting a link in the podcast summary, as well as the publication, because the study is open access. So why do we even need to know about causative factors? Some can be avoided. For example, exposure to valproic acid has been linked to autism. Illness as a response to infection has been linked to autism. Some can be partially prevented like air pollution, but unfortunately, we can only do so much here. Sometimes it's not possible to avoid air pollution, especially in underserved communities. That's, however, a topic I do want to discuss more and have a great guest in mind to interview. However, knowledge of these factors don't even have to lead to things like prevention. They can be essential to avoid unnecessary concern. Like to vaccines, we have to study them to understand that there is no link. They do not cause autism. Another thing is refrigerator or neglectful mothers do not cause autism. It's like making a silly face will not cause it to freeze and look like that forever. We need to study these things. 20 years ago, the only way to look at what were causal factors in infancy and pregnancy 
was through retrospective studies. Take someone with a disorder, any disorder or disease, let's say even the risk of a heart attack. You find a person and then, or a group of people, and then you go back and ask them questions after their heart attack and dig into their medical records, their parents' medical records, their infant records. Well, that's not really accurate and it's not really even a complete assessment of everything that goes on. However, what if there was a way to start from birth or pregnancy and then track all those births for years and years? This was done somewhat in the National Children's Study in the United States, but it kind of just fell apart. The United States just does not have the infrastructure that Finland does. So Finland recruited 100,000 women in Norway who were in the early stages of pregnancy or trying to become pregnant, or they just found them in OBGYN clinics and asked them if they wanted to participate in this study. And because they work on a national health system, these families were able to be tracked for their outcomes, and they also added on some real-time assessments to better understand a range of issues. Like, for example, everyone got the SRS. Everyone got the autism screening tool, the MCHAT. Some got pulmonary tests for asthma and that sort of thing. They weren't just looking at autism. They were looking at autism, ADHD, schizophrenia, cancer, asthma, allergies, a whole mess of stuff. They collected blood samples from the pregnant women, blood samples from babies and children to collect information about environmental exposures, and they also stored DNA. This is important because we need DNA to understand the genetic component. What's most important is that the people in the study are examining factors that involved both a genetic and environmental factor that could influence outcome. And since the study included mothers and fathers, they could get the DNA and environmental exposure from them as well as the children. This is a really rare opportunity. So one question to be addressed when it comes to autism that's in the minds of families is whether or not antidepressants taken during pregnancy cause autism in those kids. I'm not saying women cause their child's autism. I'm saying, do we need to monitor the outcome of children born to mothers who took antidepressants? Could there be some dep antidepressants that are less risky than others? There have been multiple studies to say that it's not the antidepressants, but then where is it coming from? Could it possibly be the psychiatric condition of the parents that contribute to risk of something in the child? What about coffee consumption? Is that linked to addiction or other neuropsychiatric issues in some way? What about genes associated with weight gain? We know that obese mothers are more likely to have children with health problems than other moms. Again, I'm not mom blaming. I'm sure their doctors give them enough blame. The question here is, is there a genetic predisposition in the parents that may explain the outcome in the child. It may not have anything to do with the obesity itself. It may be because the genetics that are present in the parents manifest themselves differently in children. I hope that makes sense. For example, in schizophrenia, many parents smoke. Well, is it the smoking or is it the genes relating to addiction? And are they involved in the schizophrenia outcome? And why is it always about mothers and not fathers? There are genes associated with these things in fathers where there will presumably not be any intrauterine exposure in the child. We hear about this with parental age or paternal age. This term is called genetic confounding. But some environmental exposures that have thought to be causal, can they be attributed to the genetics behind these exposures? 
So the researchers in Finland looked at three conditions, ADHD, schizophrenia, and autism, because all of them have influences that are polygenic or genetically polygenic. Yes, cases of autism can be due to single genes, but they can also be due to tiny variations on genes that everyone has and the accumulation of those genes, including the mutations on genes associated with neurodevelopment is what leads to autism together with environmental factors. The individual common variation can be called a polygenic risk score. That summarizes the association of all the variants. They focused on polygenic risk scores in each of these conditions, which by themselves are on this spectrum. Autism itself is a spectrum, but it's also on a spectrum with schizophrenia and ADHD. I want to mention that PGS or polygenic risk scores on these common variations do not necessarily always have to be causal. They may increase the risk or likelihood, but by themselves, we're really still not sure. They looked at polygenic risk scores for autism, schizophrenia, and ADHD, and saw if those scores, which are different across conditions, predicted anything else other than those disorders in the child. Now, of course, that can be an open book. You can have tens of thousands of other disorders or other conditions or anything else or susceptibility to environmental exposure. So they focused on a couple of things. They focused on body mass index. They focused on pregnancy weight gain. They focused on anxiety and depression in the parents. And they also focused on things like migraines. So does a high PGS score for ADHD also predict, say, a high score for, say, obesity? In that way, the genetics may partially explain the link between obesity during pregnancy and ADHD in the infant or the toddler. There can also be things that would influence diet or medication. So scores around depression and anxiety in parents that would maybe warrant medication may be, in fact, linked to, say, ADHD, schizophrenia, or autism in the child. By the way, as I stop here, why does everything have to be so complicated? It's the human brain, that's why. So we're a few minutes in, and you probably want to know what the study found. For schizophrenia, the PGS scores associated with schizophrenia were also associated with a higher likelihood of smoking and coffee consumption during pregnancy. It was also associated with a lower body mass index. And in fact, in MOBA, lower weight mothers were more likely to have a child with schizophrenia. But this is an autism podcast. What about autism? The autism polygenic risk score was associated with the higher odds of depression and anxiety. Now, other studies have said that it was the drugs to treat depression and anxiety, not the condition that was associated with this link. Now, it is probably both. There's, pro- there's obviously a genetic complex interaction between depression in the mother, having to take antidepressants, later autism in the child, and then that genetic comorbidity between genetic predisposition in the mother and then autism in the, in the child. Compared to schizophrenia and ADHD, however, there were fewer of these confounders in autism. For example, ADHD had a link between asthma that could partially be explained by the genetic liability between asthma and ADHD. What does that part mean? Is there less genetic confounding in autism? Probably absolutely not. There were just fewer things like genes associated with smoking, body mass index, migraines, and dietary exposures associated with autism. 
But what this study does do is link genes in the environment in a novel way, which they could continue to do. Genetic confounding is a type of gene-environment interaction. So thank you, MOBA, and thanks to the entire team, including Dr. Havdal, for this study. The next topic, the brain, specifically organoids or assembloids. I've talked about this before. The best way to understand the cells of the brains of people with autism is to study them directly. Now, this can only go so far using the methodology we have. The best way is to ask families who've lost a loved one with autism to donate those brains to research, much the way people are asked to donate their lungs, liver, heart, and corneas. Of course, this isn't for transplantation, but for research. And another podcast can discuss all the ways and all the things that have been discovered thanks to postmortem brain tissue. But here's a clue. Scientists better understand things like sensory abnormalities, sex differences, cognitive impairment, and sleep disturbances through studies of postmortem tissue. But scientists need answers yesterday, not in the future when, when there's enough brains of people with autism to study. Also, the brain of a person who's died is not active. Those cells don't communicate. They don't fire anymore. It's not nothing bad. It's just the truth. Scientists need models of cells of people with autism that are turned on, active, or can be turned on or off, and are integrated with the system around them. So this week, Stanford University made huge leaps to better understand how this can be done and how the findings won't just allow just Stanford, but other labs and research projects to do a better job documenting the exact circuitry of a person, but through cells in a dish. Here's the caveat, though. They're not in a dish, and I'll explain. I also want to say that I invited senior author Dr. Sergio Pasca to be interviewed, which he will do later this year, but these findings are too exciting to save. The study appeared on the New York Times on Wednesday, so you can read that article, but here's an also establish the explanation based on the publication. So Dr. Pasca's lab, and he's worked with several collaborators, this work gets done by groups and not individuals, started with cells of people with different disorders. I want to call out three people who were very much involved, all from Stanford, which are Omar Rava, Felicity Gore, and Kevin Kelly, all from Stanford. Anyway, one of the disorders they study is a disorder that needs understanding on a cellular level and is associated with autism. They looked at something called Timothy syndrome. Timothy syndrome is a rare genetic disorder on a gene that also has a high prevalence of autism, but more specifically, they have cardiac problems as well. It's not a good situation. These people desperately need help. So do other families with rare genetic disorders and autism, but really in the past, the best way to understand the way these cells interacted was to take cells from a person, usually skin cells, put them in a dish, and put them back into their embryological state. You do this with different chemicals at different time points. There's a whole science behind it. Now, before they became skin cells, you turn them back into their embryological state, and they're called induced pluripotent stem cells. You take those cells and add different chemicals and heat and all sorts of processes that deserve its own podcast, so I won't get it wrong here, and then they can turn, be turned into neurons. Labs around the world are doing this with iPSCs, or induced pluripotent stem cells. But honestly, these induced pluripotent stem cells in a dish aren't good enough. 
they can produce electrical signals and they can release chemicals, but sometimes they only generate one type of cell or they don't get specialized enough. They can grow independently, but they don't always connect to other organoids or clumps of cells. I know the word clumps of cells sounds gross, but it's probably kind of lay-friendly description here than organoids. Different organoid systems like brain and spinal cord could connect to each other, but not very well. And also, they're just not as mature. So Dr. Pasca's lab and other labs around the world, including at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences, also in California, have been transplanting these organoids into the brains of animals. The brain of an animal, a live brain, has just so many more support system for the growth of new brain cells. They have different growth factors. They have microglia and other support cells, and they also have continuous blood flow. So it makes sense that this model would probably be more reflective of an active, integrated neural system. And shout out to all the other scientists in the world doing the same thing. These discoveries happen because people are doing the science, sharing their findings, and trying to replicate and extend the work of others. So the Stanford lab put these organoids or clumps of neurons from Timothy syndrome patients into the young brains of rodents, two-day-old rodents to be exact, and in an area that processes sensory signals. So not only did the organoids thrive, and become more like the cells in people, they got connected with the brain regions of the rodents in the sensory system. So when I say more like cells in actual people, I want you to compare a long, tall, mature oak tree. Think about what that looks like. It is tall, it has many branches, it has many branches on branches. Compare that to a little apple tree sapling, which has one branch and maybe or has or has one trunk and maybe three branches. That's the difference between implanting these cells in a rat versus trying to get them all grown up in a dish. So when they were implanted in a rat, the organoids integrated so well that when the mouse experienced a sensory input, the organoid itself responded. Let me repeat that. These human cells transplanted into a mouse were able to functionally integrate into the brain. When there was sensory input given to the animal, these organoids responded. In addition, when the organoid was stimulated, the rodent changed its behavior accordingly. Now, this is amazing, but the point is not to make a mouse model. The point is to better understand the function of living neurons. How can we make human cells turn into neurons and then allow to flourish, develop, integrate, connect, and be part of an overall system? We can then use these organoids to better understand what's going on in people with, say, Timothy syndrome and autism, Phelan McDermott syndrome and autism, or even idiopathic autism. This is just the beginning. With this type of method, scientists can see in real time, in real human cells, with the real condition, when and where things happen in different cell types. Is sensory overload caused by a certain cell type or how one cell type turns on? Do we need to turn that cell volume down? And how do we do it? We can do it now by looking at those cells. How can it be integrated into other brain cells? And can that activity be modulated by things like drugs or even because, again, they're part of a 
living system behavioral interventions. I feel like I'm really not doing this study justice, but I'm going to leave the Nature article in the podcast summary and go to figure two to see the advantages that this model has over the traditional cells in a dish technique. Figure five shows how these cells are now integrative as active, functioning, mature-ish, because again, they're still young, they're not mature neurons, that actually work and connect. It's all unbelievable, but I'm going to shut up so you can fully enjoy Dr. Pasca's interview later this year. So stay tuned. And thank you all for listening this week.